Hi, everybody. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Welcome to IAB Rio, our special podcast upfronts edition day two. This has been an exciting day of presentations uh, at the podcast upfront. We started with ESPN. We went through Barstool Sports, Viacom CBS, Vox Media, American Public Media, ACAST, Podsites, Pushkin. We ended the presentations with the New York Times, and we're starting today's podcast uh, with the New York Times. I'm delighted that Sebastian Tomich, the global head of advertising and marketing solutions for the New York Times, is has joined us alongside of Zoe Soon. She is the vice president of the Consumer Experience Center here at the IAB. Zoe and Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, welcome back, Zoe. You were my, my co-pilot yesterday. Uh, Sebastian, it was a remarkable presentation, uh, and thank you, which you hosted. Uh, thank you for that. One of the takeaways that I had was that it seemed to me, in your conversation with Michael Barbaro of The Daily, that everybody at the Times was delightfully surprised at the extent to which The Daily which started as kind of a fast follower of the news. I've been a devoted listener since the first day um, where it was a kind of behind the scenes, uh, get to know the reporters. I wouldn't, for example, have uh, bought, read, and loved Mike Isaacs super pumped if it weren't for the daily. And then somewhere along the line, it switched into being a kind of a driver uh, of the news. Can you talk with us about that? Yeah, and for, and I should say first, congratulations on the great show today. Um, we were in, in great company and, and got to close out the show. Yeah, the, the Daily has been around for four years uh, and change, and um, or I might have got that wrong, three years, three, four years. In early conversations when we had talked about making a sizable investment in the podcast space, you know, we had had podcasts before that. Everyone expected us to go out with a new show. So, and I think there's a famous anecdote about when um, the Daily team brought the concept of the Daily to our publisher. You know, he said, wait, I thought we were going to be talking about a Daily Headlines read. What is this? Um, and we actually had had uh, BMW also launch with us as well. And a, as a separate anecdote, um, you know, when we had sold that program to them, we had come back to them with some pretty conservative audience estimates, something like 70,000 downloads or something like that. And then right off the gates, um, I think we went out with 700,000 downloads instead of 70,000, and it just became this rocket ship. And not only become, did it become a rocket ship for uh, the business and for the listeners, but also for the newsroom as well. And so what you'll hear consistently in the building is the Daily has become this incredible front door to our journalism, similar to how the front page of the newspaper, um, where journalists you know, used to compete for that famous space on A1, they now compete to be on the daily every morning. And I think what it does so well is take these stories, and I think more. this is probably more relevant than ever, that seem to be persisting for long periods of time. So take like um, Russian interference in the election, or the, the 2020 election, or um, you know, the rise of Facebook and the challenges around it. Uh, it takes those stories and it helps put it into context with you know, the, the kind of backstories from our journalists. You know, what are they doing to get to the story, the buildup? And then they take you into the stories themselves. And I think both for the newsroom, it's a powerful storytelling tool, but then also for 
our listeners, it's a, it can be in some cases a more accessible way to our journalism. So let's dig in on those numbers for a moment because uh, they're pretty remarkable. Um, there are 4 million listeners per day for The Daily, and we will talk about other things than just The Daily, uh, but you also hit a milestone recently of 2 billion downloads for The Daily. So there's a, a scale play to be made. I think it was uh, Ira Glass who said that this was as big as a TV uh, buy these days. What I wanna ask you though is about the quality of attention. Uh, Zoe um, has observed uh, to me many times that the, um, the, there's an intimacy around podcasts. Uh, it's, you're usually wearing headphones, most people. They're next to your body. They're inside of your body if you're wearing AirPods. Uh, for those of us who are crowded into smaller houses with our families, there are necessary sort of personal bubble uh, around that. Uh, and also something we heard not just in the New York Times presentation, but throughout the presentations today was that the level of attention, the quality of attention, the quality uh, of loyalty on the part of listeners was different with podcasts. And I'm wondering if you have found that at the New York Times, and if so, how is it different? So, I mean, it, I would like to say that I think the New York Times writ large has a fairly dedicated audience. I should thank you for being a listener and reader. Um, it's one of the things that separates us, I think, in the category is just the loyalty and the repeat viewership, readership, listenership that we get, um, particularly from our subscribers. I think that the Daily is an interesting one. So the Daily is both, I think, an add-on for our subscribers. So it's, you know, for people who are downloading our app and going through our headlines, you know, in and out of the day. Um, this is a new way, a new gateway to the times, but it's also um, a way for us to reach entirely new audiences. It tends to be um, spread more across the country. It tends to be younger. Um, I would say probably more digitally savvy. Um, so probably less crossover with print. And then in terms of the quality of the audience, um, you know, one, a way to, to, to characterize this is actually through the attention we pay to the ads. Um, you know, the, the daily audience, it is a, it's a relationship, you know, and I think you could probably say the same for most podcasts that where the, you have a strong kind of personality leading the show. Um, you know, these are people that feel that they have a relationship with Michael, you know, he's their um, voice of the day and they have a relationship with the show and the ads are very much part of that. And, we can, I can say emphatically and with a lot of my colleagues, we spend a lot of time thinking about the quality of the ads and who the advertisers are because when you do have some advertisers um, who our, our audience feels very passionately about, either positively or negatively, we're going to hear about it. Um, and, you know, Michael will get emails, we'll get emails internally, but it speaks to the engagement and passion of the audience. And then... I would say as a broader both plug and note about podcast advertising, um, I think it just speaks to the power of both. And this, this, this sounds negative, but it's not. Um, so both linear advertising, um, something I think that TV was really good at, that is, you know, as people call sometimes for the end of linear TV, I think that podcast, podcast advertising is great because it's both linear and it's disruptive. It's, it, it is in the middle of the show. You are forced to listen to it. Um, and I think that is actually, you know, for the business, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, I think in digital advertising, we've struggled to oftentimes, particularly with digital display advertising, 
to prove that people are both like seeing and digesting the messages. And I think in the case of um, podcasts writ large, but definitely specifically the daily, you have a really passionate um, listener base who are then listening to the ads as well. And that's ultimately what the advertisers are after. So let me end this segment with one last question, which is here at the IAB, we're passionately committed to the project of making the news safe for advertisers. It is already safe for advertisers. We want to convince them that news saves lives, that news is not only safe for advertisers, it's actually important strategically, that the that it's not, you're not going to advertise on the news because you ought to, you're going to do it because that's a way of getting in front of the right audience. So Sebastian, what's your pitch to brands that news is safe, uh, that it's suitable, and, and that it's the right place to be? Um, I, I do not buy for one second that a listener associates um, the news, tough topics in the news, and then somehow will, will associate that with negativity around the brand. I think that um, two years ago, I used to get frankly pretty upset um, when there wasn't this distinction um, between brand safety and brand suitability. Thank the Lord, the industry is beginning to make that distinction. I think um, news, high quality news in particular, is absolutely brand suitable and it's absolutely brand safe. Um, I think that attention should be focused entirely on technology platforms and we should we should just kind of move on from the news category. And the news category, I would again, Michael noted this in our presentation today, you know, advertisers more than ever need to be relevant. Culture is moving fast and in a time that is more turbulent and fast changing, it's never been more important for advertisers to be around these stories. Um, I News as a whole, I think when I started at the Times, um, didn't feel as current as it is today. And apologies, I have my dogs barking in the background. This is the, the magic of live recording. Um, News, you know, news is always incredibly important, but I would say news has never been more relevant to culture as it is today. And Whoops. so then I would say, buy those ads in the daily. Good, I'm glad you got that in there. Uh, <laughs> by the way, just for our listening audience, for those people who uh, want to see the New York Times presentation, the, for registered people, you'll be able to see it on demand uh, for the next couple of months. We're also, I want to make a point of saying it wasn't just about the daily. We heard about Kara Swisher's new podcast, Sway. We heard about the partnership between the New York Times, This American Life and Serial. We also heard about Still Processing with Wesley Morris, who was featured in your, in your presentation. Uh, and so it was a remarkable presentation. Uh, Sebastian Tomich, thank you so much for joining us at IB Real. I hope that you'll come back soon. Thanks for having me, Brad. And again, congrats on a great show. Thank you so much. We are now being joined by Marshall Williams. He's a partner and CEO at Ad Results Media. For those of you who watched uh, the podcast Upfronts today, he also was the attribution cowboy during the pod sites set of mini in, uh, stat statistical and data presentations. Uh, Marshall Williams, thank you for joining us on IAB Real. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, happy to be followed or to be following uh, Sebastian. Great product, big fan. Uh, I was very excited when they pivoted into the, the audio space because um, I knew uh, that kind of New York Times alignment was only going to create more energy in the podcast space, and it has. So tell us, what is Ad Results Media? 
well, we are an advertising agency that specializes in audio and <clears throat> specifically influence audio influencers. Most people, when they hear the term influencer, think social media influence. What we do is align the clients that we work with, with hosts and use those audio influencers, the hosts of these podcasts in particular, but it also includes radio. Um, in this context, podcasters to promote the products and services of the companies we represent. And um, uh, it is a dynamic and fast growing space that yields fantastic results for our clients. So happy to be part of this, uh, this new frontier of podcasting. Well, I'm going to turn to Zoe and ask her for her insights about the pod sites data that we we got which were presented in a delightful fashion and and you were a part of it after that i'm going to come back to you marshall to ask what really popped out at you of the presentations that we heard today where do you think you may want to be spending some of your clients money uh, and then zoe will will turn to you with that same question not about clients but about what what really struck you but but from the we we had the pod sites presentation which by the way if you want to see the entire report you can do so by going to podsites.com/iab and register there and they will hand it over to you so from that presentation and that report what really popped out at you as actionable for brands and agencies coming out of uh, this year's podcast upfronts? I think for me, I think it was the diversity of data that's available. So we're used to the, you know, the vanity URL, the use this coupon code and getting attribution from the podcast ad that way or foot traffic. Uh, but now we have pixel based device graphs where we can actually see who's, who's listened to your ad, who's heard it. Um, there's data on the optimal frequency rate. So it, looks like there's le it requires less exposures to kind of get podcast audience to buy. Uh, and there's also data showing that um, having a diversified buy across a range of shows, it had a 2.4 lift in conversion. So I thought that was a really interesting stat to take away. Marshall, what our audience can't see is that you were nodding vigorously a moment ago. Uh, tell, tell us what you, what you were uh, not reacting to in Zoe's account? Well, the audio attribution, she mentioned a couple of, uh, of the more traditional methods of attribution in the, with a lot of our, a big percentage of our clients are direct to consumer brands that try and track return on ad spend and cost per acquisition numbers. And in the past, attribution tools have been a little blurry in terms of a true one-to-one -one connection. In the digital space, if you clicked on a Facebook ad, you immediately knew who that was and you could retarget, et cetera. Same thing with social media influencers. Because they posted a pixel inside that display ad or that banner or that link or what have you that could track. Audio, obviously, because of its innate mobility and on-demand and the way it's consumed, because in the podcast space, a lot of it, if not most of it, is latent consumption. You download and listen later. Um, so there's no way to get that one-to-one -one connection as you would in a digital environment. So the, the creation of an attribution tool for audio is, was a very dynamic and important thing that happened. And what happened was when somebody downloaded a podcast, a pixel would fire and it would, it would through device graphs, et cetera, would, and a corresponding pixel placed on a brand's website could tell you what happened if somebody downloaded that podcast and how they responded. 
So that what much more close to that digital style of attribution, and we've been looking at that for a long time. As tech is relatively new, it's a, a little more than a year old. But as Zoe mentioned, the amount of lift we've seen relative to what our more traditional media code, vanity URL attribution tools, uh, this is really dynamic and has shown that audio works to a level that was understated with our previous attribution tools. Very excited about what is happening here and the tech that's coming into the podcast space. Happy to be a part of that journey. So back to my question before, which I, I teased a little bit um, before this part, which is what really popped out at you from these this today's presentations or yesterday's, but yeah. where do you think you might want to lean in with your clients? Right. Okay. Excellent. Excellent question. Uh, as mentioned, when we, you first introduced me, I was very happy when the New York Times stepped into this space because it was a lot of creators, content creators, who just loved and had great passion for what they did, but they tended to be a little bit off the beaten path, not household names. A couple of things we've seen over the past two days, much more presence of household names, New York Times, NBC, CBS, uh, Turner, uh, much more, much larger presence by those large brand recognizable news brands, sports brands, et cetera, ESPN that are leading into the space. That's great. The expansion of content is fantastic for the universe of podcast. The other thing, there was quite a bit of kids programming uh, introduced today or that's in the funnel. I think that's phenomenal. Part of the reason that podcasting is as sticky as it is, is that a generation of a consumer, my kids, in fact, have grown up with a smartphone in their hand. And that's become the de facto antenna, which used to be how people consume television and radio. So this younger generation is growing up with this device where they can get content on demand when they want it, where they want it, in a truly mobile environment. So to see kids programming come out as being introduced is great. <clears throat> also, I think what Charlemagne the God is doing who's a radio personality in New York, who's creating the Black Effect Network, is phenomenal. Not only is it timely, that is an avenue that I believe is going to have fantastic legs going into the future. I'm very excited about that. The, one of the things that Sebastian touched on earlier was this connective tissue with host and audience. And you mentioned headphones. I had a gentleman tell me years ago that they felt like podcasting with a set of headphones is like having a narrator into your life. And that's what makes the advertising inside podcasting work so well, or part of it is that, that, that connective tissue, that emotional connection you have with the host and with this content. And uh, I'm just excited about the expansion. I think that the, the greater the universe of content, the better it'll be for all of us and especially advertisers, because what we've seen is in most cases with our, and in, in, we have a large subset of direct-to-consumer brands, but also brands that learn from what the direct-to-consumer people do, the yield that we see is oftentimes better than any other channel they have. That, that's very exciting. I, I want to lean in on something you said, which is both yesterday and today, and we talked about this briefly in our IAB Real episode yesterday, we've seen an extraordinary dedication to diversity of all kinds not just Charlemagne the God. Something that popped out at me earlier today was when Vox Media was talking about Chicano Squad, 
uh, among other things. And so, uh, and then to follow up on your account about kids programming, it wasn't just programming, it was also this uh, general theory of extensibility. So Jenny Walls, the CMO of Nickelodeon, talked about an eye to ear strategy. And later Molly Bloom from APM talked about how some of the podcasts there were possibly going to become television shows. And so there's, it's really remarkable and thoughtful the way that kids programming is trying to take what Jenny Wall again called screenless moments. I have two, two adolescents in my home, prying the phones out of their hands, getting them to not look at a screen, uh, but getting them to listen to something while perhaps they're, they're sketching or, or you know, doing something else. Uh, as a parent, those things are, are really quite remarkable. Um, let me ask you, Zoe, uh, what popped out at you? And particularly uh, what Marshall was talking about were the larger companies, the big scale companies, the, the, the real media empires. Was there anything in any of the smaller publishers that popped out at you as being, as being particularly interesting today? Well, I think one stat definitely that came out from the Podsites um, presentation was that podcast listeners are 45% more likely to buy. Uh, and then you heard, I think it was Julie Snyder uh, in that Ira Glass serial segment talking about how curious and passionate their, their viewership is. So really speaking to the quality of audience. Um, and, and of course, I really enjoyed uh, Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg's Pushkin presentation. I'm looking forward to the Revisionist History podcast in particular. Uh, I think they did an amazing job filming that and, and really pushing their brand as a thought leader, as, as appealing to that niche audience at scale, which is, it sounds like a, an oxymoron, but it's, it's, that's kind of what Malcolm Gladwell is known for, just getting into those interesting topics. And they had a remarkable statistic. I'm curious, Marshall, I thought it was remarkable uh, if you agree, which is they, they say they have a 75% average completion rate at Pushkin. Do, is, that, is that a number to reckon with or is that fairly standard? Oh gosh, I would, because of the nature of their content, I think that's low. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I just, I've, I've known Jacob for a while and, and Malcolm via him and I don't know Malcolm well, but his, their content is so compelling and so dynamic that some of the early data we saw anecdotally from Apple early on, which is the, the big distributor, if you will, uh, it's not, the distributor is not the right adjective, but, but distribution platform indicated that, that people really are sticky in the, in the on-demand audio space, in the podcast space. And that some of the shows, even lengthy shows, 90 minutes or longer, have 90 plus percent completion rates. And I just think with, with Malcolm's style of content and Jacob's style of thought leadership, that people will really stay tuned. It's one of those things where people love the content, want to be engaged with it. Depending on kind of availability, I mean, I would think that, that, that the level of, of, of stickiness relative to an entire show is pretty high. I mean, we've seen like the long, longer shows out there like Joe Rogan, um, gosh, he'll get to 90% completion rates and his show could be three hours long. And so it's, it's, I'm, I'm surprised that 70, I'm surprised it's not longer than 75%, but it's, that's still a remarkable number considering how other media types don't even get close to that kind of completion rate. 
Well, that's fascinating. Let me let me end the segment with a question for both of you, Marshall, for you first. I was struck in the Vox Media presentation when they were talking about the Who We Are podcast, which is uh, deeply integrated with the Ben & Jerry's brand. Uh, ben & Jerry's, which is part of Unilever, which is you know one of the two largest CPG manufacturers uh, on the planet. Uh, ben & Jerry's has always been an outlier, very outspoken as a brand, the two founders as well. Uh, are podcasts the new soap operas? Right? Tied, we called them soap operas because they were you know, very focused on detergent because you know, in the earlier days of television, we had you know, uh, housewives who were, at least this is the story that the industry told itself, were, were watching their stories and they were sponsored by household goods like Tide. Here we have uh, something quite remarkable uh, about the civil rights, uh, about American identity, deeply twinned to- a in, in some context, yes. Um, we've, we've done some things for our clients that are a holistic approach to podcast, meaning they'll, they'll be the sole sponsor and sort of the soul behind what the content is. One of our clients is ZipRecruiter, and we've done things on uh, podcast elements about hiring and how to be hired and what the new economy is, how it's expanding and, and that kind of thing in terms of, of larger content. I like that kind of, they call it branded content. I, I like that kind of thing. I think it's going to be niche but I do think there is a, a elemental place out there, especially for a socially active brand like Ben & Jerry's. I think they're perfectly suited for that. So, so your point is made. The other thing about podcasting being the new soap operas, I think elementally there is a section of podcasting that is a soap opera, if you will. At the early part of the coronavirus onset, when we were sequestered in our homes and there was no commutes, we did see a dip in, we saw an increase in news programming, a dip in sports programming, which is passes the sniff test, very common sense, because there wasn't any sports. But we also saw a dip in some of the true crime genre and celebrity uh, style podcasts, okay? Those are me time podcasts, like soap operas used to be. And it's like kind of a departure. Well, at the beginning of the coronavirus thing, everybody was nervous and worried and what's going to happen. But as we've seen, we get back to a level of normalcy, even if we're not commuting, but we want that me time. And so those shows that reach into that sort of departure, mental departure, and I want to take a break from from the you know troubles of the real world, or I've got a few minutes to just spend some time inside my own head. I think those perhaps are going to be the soap operas of the future, the audio soap operas, the the reality shows and the true crime shows, and maybe the celebrity gossip podcasts, which are great. We've seen a real rebound now in terms of downloads from the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic, and right now is there's the high watermark of downloads in the universe of podcasting. So it's, this is an exciting time. This is a, a, a space that's accelerating quickly. And um, God, I'm really excited about what the future holds because there's so much growth and opportunity out there. And it's a robust advertising space. It really yields results. That's a fantastic answer. Zoe, do you want to weigh in on anything there? I, I think that, that to reflect back to you, Marshall, uh, that the, this issue that I've been seeing throughout the podcast upfront presentations 
of not only scale, but the quality, the unique flavor of attention that auditors bring to the programming they love and to the brands that support that programming. Zoe, the, the original question seemingly endless in MS a minutes ago was, uh, are our podcast, the new soap operas? Just want to know if you have anything to add there. Yes. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of the podcast creators creating exclusive content. Um, you know, Cadence 13 yesterday talked about C13 being there, almost like their own little studio. Um, and that kind of tracks to what we're seeing from our last podcast revenue study, which showed advertisers leaning into buying series instead of one-off programming. So I do think it's evolving into that, that state where it becomes sort of opera-like um, and advertisers will be buying series and audiences according to those shows. Well, Marshall Williams, CEO at Ad Results Media, Zoe Soon, Vice President of our Consumer Experience Center here at the IAB. Thank you both so much for joining me today on IAB Real. Again, our, our audio audience doesn't see that Marshall's put his cowboy hat on. He, he's uh, hopefully looking, looking to uh, take a, a well-deserved break. So. The podcast cowboy. That's my, my alter ego. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. For those of you who are interested in the podcast revenue study that Zoe just mentioned, you can find it, as well as all of our other spend and revenue research at iab.com slash spend. Tomorrow is day three of the 2020 IAB podcast upfront. Our hosts uh, will be Francesca Ramsey, who's been our consistent host for the last two days. She'll be joined by Julian Castro, formerly of the Obama administration, as her co-host. We will have presentations from Westwood One, Public Media Marketing, Art 19, Authentic, as well as Meredith. Afterwards, uh, please join the wrap party with David Cohen, our CEO at the IAB, Max Willens of Digiday, Jennifer Hungerbuehler of Dentsu Aegis's Amplify, and Jennifer Brink of Blooming Brands as they review the podcast upfronts and what their takeaways are. You can resume watching the podcast upfronts tomorrow at iab.com slash podcast upfront. My name is Brad Behrens. I'm the editor-in-chief here at the IAB. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on IAB Real. We'll see you tomorrow and we'll see you next week as well. Bye-bye, everybody.